Welcome to another episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And it's a new month, so we're starting a new genre. But first, we, we finished up October last month, Thomas, and it was a big movie-watching month for the podcast and also ourselves, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're doing now we're doing November is the plan. And a lot of, like horror from last month, a lot of different subgenres of of film noir yes is the thing yes absolutely Um, and this month we're gonna be discussing a specific genre of film noir we're also gonna be discussing on our patreon this month kind of the different facets of other versions of film noir so stay tuned for that mary go follow us on patreon join one of our tiers we have a one dollar five dollar ten dollar um and a little bit helps it gets the show going it kind of helps fund what we're doing in this show that we're doing weekly is the thing so more exclusive content for you that way if you can subscribe to that if possible but yeah so we're talking about noir this month but specifically we're talking about neon noir and i didn't really know about this this part of the noir genre until a few years ago um when one of our friends anna who's coming on this month kind of brought it up to us and so what what do you think of when you think of neon noir thomas um you know i think of i think of definitely think of the movie we're covering today uh i think of michael mann uh i think of i think of the 80s um you know we we covered um back in february we covered erotic thrillers and i think a lot of like 80s erotic erotic thrillers are also neon noir Mm -hmm. films but not necessarily you know not all not all erotic thrillers are neon noirs not all neon noirs are neurotic or neurotic thrillers thrillers. but um but I do think like '80s, yeah. and and I think I think that's fairly like anytime you see a modern neo neon noir, it's it's very much kind of harkening back to the '80s, yeah. and 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 you know ultimately what I think of is this idea because noir was so like what's going on in the shadows, yeah. you know what's what's going on in the alleyways that we can't see, and I I think what's really cool about neon noir is it's like we're gonna light we're gonna light all those corners that you yeah. can't see with bright. Yeah. colors and you're going to find that it's still just as grimy and, and transgressive as as it was when it was shadowy back there um so it's it's a really cool it's a really cool aesthetic it's a really cool uh genre and and from like a storytelling standpoint it generally involves some kind of like twist on yeah. the noir there it's it's generally not just kind of like a straight up noir with neon yeah. lights they, they they usually have some sort of kind of pushing the genre forward yeah. so it's 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 a really cool genre for us to look into yeah, this month i think when when researching i think the big thing that always happens in neon noir there's like three kind of key aspects a neon aesthetic neon lighting for the most part mm-hmm. and then there is essentially a it mostly at night uh, to allow that aesthetic mm-hmm. to kind of really shine but mostly at night um if and then the fi- the final big part is that a lot of neon noirs have some sort of violent climax, whether that be a big shootout, mm-hmm. whether that be just so- like some sort of kind of say explosions or whatever. And a lot of these these points are are part of the noir genre. Like it's it's I think even in the forties you had some sort of like big say shootout in some way but i think when we or like say like white heat where there's the big explosion at the end sorry for spoiling white heat mm-hmm. for people um but uh th- there's a lot it's it's there there's violence but when it gets into the 70s and 80s 
you can be more overt with your violence. There's not as many rules in terms of like censorship with violence. So, I mean, again, Mm -hmm. the one that kind of solidifies the genre would be Michael Mann and specifically Thief because Thief is that where like a lot at night, neon colors. And we talked about this in our Michael Mann episode back in April, which you can go listen to uh, as we talk about Thief and all these kind of neon noir movies. But you have this mass, this, this really violent, like explosive finale in Thief, like basically like Thief, like that that whole the whole movie builds that finale in Thief, where James Conn mm-hmm. is just essentially going ham for the last 20, 15 minutes of the movie when he's basically er- almost erasing everything in his life, essentially one by mm-hmm. one. And and with a lot of these neon noir, you're gonna have some sort of violent climactic battle in some way. It's not going to be a lot, say, not going to be philosophical in some way, like in certain noir films that time, or or like a quick kind of shootout to get it over. These are usually kind of really long, drawn out climaxes. And I think Blade Runner, which we're talking about today, I think fits all three of those as we talk about the aesthetic and the long night shoots they had and the kind of finale of the whole movie. But yeah, it's like. Mm-hmm. And then you said like it harkens certain movies that come out today that harken back to these earlier neon noir drive, which we'll talk about this month. I think it very much harkens back to movies like Thief and like The Driver from Walter Hill, um, which was it was heavily inspired by. Um, those are all kind of present, but yeah. And 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 for those that understand, I'll, let's break it down even more because I know I had this question recently at one of our movie nights from one of our new people. She said like. What is noir? You keep mentioning noir. What does that mean? So, Thomas, what is no- film noir to you and your and your eyes? So, you know, we, we we was last year. Did we do just noir, or was that two years ago for November? We did two years ago, November. I can't remember what we did last November. Now I think of. Did we do neo neo noir last no, neo, year? No, no. Um, we did January for neo noir because you want to do Jan noir or, or or what was what was it? What was, yeah. Yes. <laughs> January, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of course. How could I forget? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's this idea. You know, it, it it harkens back to to early Hollywood and specifically when German expressionism was brought over. And it's and it's a really weird genre that we talked about in Noir Month. It's it's one of the sh- most distinctive genres in that it is as equally tied to style as it is storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these genres that we cover are about storytelling it's about tropes it's about characters and that's where you get the genres from but noir is like equally important that it's shot a certain way uh because early noir developed from german expressionism and and this idea of of kind of this this dark and shadowy uh high contrast which when you're shooting black and white it means the the blacks are blacker and the whites are whiter so you really get a feel for for the shadows and 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 for the things that you can't see in frame which was rare at the time within filmmaking. And so taking that sort of very shadowy, dark filmmaking and and putting it together with storytelling that was also very dark, that was talking about crime, that was talking about detectives, that was talking about mobsters, uh, that was talking about all this stuff that's kind of going on in, like I said, in kind of dark alleyways at night um, that would kind of be outside of, of, of the the social norms. And, and so we, we talked, you know, a lot of people when they hear noir, they think detective noir, but there's also a lot of stuff. We, a lot of the films, like we talked about kind of the, the, the wrong man Mm -hmm. or the innocent man trope, or like uh, someone who's tempted 
to to you know a, a normal guy who's tempted to do something yeah. evil it's like we talked about last month with psycho kind of opening as a noir you've got marion crane who's a, a a nice girl but she's she's tempted to do something mm-hmm. bad and that puts her on the on the dark side of of grabs a bag of money and goes on a run basically yeah that's that that happens a lot in in these films and then you've also got you know as you get deeper into the tropes you have you have the femme fatale and this idea of this kind of woman who who's using her her charms to maybe seduce the 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 main character into doing something bad Mm -hmm. or, or ultimately means him harm and and so there's a lot of these storytelling tropes that are also all tied up in this idea of of noir which the name itself comes from the the darkness yeah. of the filmmaking yeah. but can also mirror the darkness within the storytelling yeah. like, so that kind of came out of the french with Cairo du cinema uh kind of looking back as a period in american filmmaking which was basically from like the world war ii 1940 to at that point they're looking at it in the 50s so they're basically from 1940 to present at that time where you were seeing a cynical view of the world a lot of times in noir a lot of the main characters that you're kind of talking about these kind of tropes and stuff or tropes and archetypes a lot of these characters were flawed in some way or corrupt cynical something and mm-hmm. that and that was because in in the in the at the world at the time you were seeing a world at war and it was very easy to be cynical about what was happening everyone was literally fighting one another at that time and again coming from a why you say german expressionism kind of what kind of happened at this point was that a lot of the filmmakers who were tackling noir in this period were either dps or uh directors writers who were who were fleeing europe at that time their germany austria or wherever because of the rise of nazi germany is what it was so you had people like billy wilder you had people like uh robert uh, Sode Mac, you had people like um, Fritz Lang who were coming over and kind of taking that style they were doing in the 20s and, and early 30s and bringing it into American filmmaking. And that's kind of how it all mm-hmm. came about in a style wise. And again, also, from, again, from a story perspective, they, they had seen the world a little bit differently than, say, Americans at that time. They had seen the atrocities that were starting to happen in Europe and it kind of just came over into this filmmaking. And then as you said, as time has gone on, noir has changed in certain ways, going from noir to neo-noir, from to neon noir to even tech noir, which we'll also be talking about today with these kind of sci-fi influenced movies. And then I think, I think even people are starting to think that there's a different type of noir happening in this moment. I think someone mentioned like a space noir is starting to happen with even more sci-fi, which we'll see how that mm. goes. Um, and I even say like horror, horror noir um horror noir where like things like night of the hunter night of the hunter fits into there is what i feel like um but mm-hmm. yeah so that's kind of the noir genre or the noir genre and the neon noir genre we'll talk more and discuss more about it as the month goes on but today we are talking about the science fiction film that is also a neon noir and that is blade runner which was released in 1982 directed by ridley scott uh with a screenplay by hampton fancher and David Peoples. It was based on a novel from Philip K. Dick uh, called Do, a- Do-, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, a very different title of the <laughs> Blade Runner. We'll discuss that as we go. Uh, and it stars Harrison Ford, Rucker Howard, Sean Young, Edward James Almos, Daryl Hannah, uh, a, lot of, a lot of fantastic people. Uh, and so Blade Runner is about this, this 
kind of retired detective for police officer Rick Deckard, who is brought in to essentially capture or to kill or as they call this movie, retire these humanoids <laughs> known as replicants. And these replicants are basically these 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 uh, robots who are made to look like humans. And essentially, these six these these six uh, replicants from from this kind of version of, of the of this creation have essentially been have, have basically done a mutiny on a ship i believe at the very beginning of the movie and there there are the the la police officers are trying to catch them and so they bring in their old police officer rick deckard who's kind of this alcoholic down as luck former detective who is really good at his job and must kind of he must find these remaining replicants and retire them and as he goes he begins to kind of have doubts about what is actually going on with these replicants in this kind of world that we're living in um and he falls he falls for a replicant by the name of rachel played by sean young uh and so very dark dreary rainy setting of 2019 los angeles we've already surpassed or passed that time period um, but yeah, so Thomas, what is your history with Blade Runner? You know, I, I, I caught a couple of scenes of Blade Runner when I was fairly young on sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably the weirdest scene you could see. It's when he's, he's looking for Pris in mm-hmm. the like toy makers apartment the, the and there's building. all these kind of toys yeah, all Bradbury around. Building, yeah. yeah at the Bradbury building. And so I saw that and then she, they've got the fight scene where she's doing like somersaults and and then i like you know i, I like flip the channel and and so then you you hear all these legends about how dense blade runner is and how how like inaccessible how confused people were and like all the different cuts and so i was like yeah that makes sense it sounds sounds really weird like i saw that scene it, it it's i get it i get what people are talking about and um so i and, and then it was that kind of thing you know as as like streaming and, and and digital home video came along, there was just all this stuff about like, oh, don't watch that version. Yeah, yeah, you got to yeah. watch this version. Don't watch yep. that version. So for a while, I was just like, I don't know which one to watch. So I'm just like, I'm just not <laughs> going to watch any of them. I don't want to watch the wrong one, uh, you know, in the early days of the Internet. So it was it was probably college before I finally sat down and somebody was like the final cut. This that's the one, and that's why it's called the final cut, which I, I might learn today is is wrong as well. No, but that's no, the one that no. I've seen multiple times. Um, and and I sat down and I was just kind of like, oh, this is fairly straightforward detective. Yeah, film. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it it asks him, you know, just like just like any kind of Philip K. Dick, if you're familiar with his work, it I mean, it asks some interesting questions about about sci-fi ideas but it's not that like plot wise it's not that hard to grasp it's <laughs> i think it's kind of been built up to this kind of legendary status about how kind of dense it is and it, and it's it, yeah it's it, it's a pretty it's a sci-fi take on a yeah, detective yeah. movie and uh, and if you remove the idea of androids and that kind of stuff it, it's it just a detective functions <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 it's it's i mean there's a reason why philip k dick's like stories kind of after this movie were so sought after to be adapted into film or television with total recall several times uh minority mm. report scanner darkly there was like people wanted to adapt philip k dick stories i think i think i read because i think this is the first one or one of the first ones and i think there's been like f- over 40 adaptations of his work since then 
is the thing mm. in some form or fashion. Um, this being one of his more known ones because of this movie. Mm-hmm. So my history of this movie, <clears throat> I was thinking about this before recording, and I was like, when did I first see this movie? And I, I remember thinking, I remember kind of renting a movie, uh, and the trailers beforehand came on. And there was this really well-crafted film. And I was like, wow, this looks really cool. And then I see Harrison Ford. I was like, wow, they made Harrison Ford look really young in this movie. Like, when <laughs> when what is, I've never I, when is this coming out? Like it felt so modern to me when mm-hmm. I saw it. I literally thought this is a new Harrison Ford movie that's about to come out that I somehow have <laughs> missed the trailer for leading up to it. And I assume based on timeline is that it was a trailer for Blade Runner Final Cut, which was coming out in like 2007. And I just remember kind of being floored by that that design, that kind of Los Angeles dystopian design this film has. And I also remember playing, and once I watched Blade Runner pretty much not long after, maybe into college too, I was reminded that there was a video game I used to play that had a level that was basically a Blade Runner level. Now, as you know, Thomas, I am not that big of a video game guy. Um, <laughs> from the many conversations of people trying to convince me to play certain games. Uh, but one of the games I played growing up with my buddy Adam, who you know, uh, was time was Time mm-hmm. Splitters Two, and there's there, ah, yes, and yes, there's there's one, one level I think called Neo Tokyo that is basically just a Blade Runner level with the neon aesthetic and the kind of multiple levels of the city, and even the score is I think very similar to uh, this movie because because th- this mo- this Blade Runner is very much like. It's Los Angeles, but it's also very much like Japanese inspired, like Asian infused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can get into the whole like very eighties, like for for better or for worse. There was this kind of, uh, for, mostly for worse. There was this kind of panic in the eighties with all the Japanese technology yes. companies coming in that like the entirety of America was just going to become this like colony yeah. of 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 Japan. Uh, uh, probably one of I'm a big Michael Crichton yeah. fan and probably one of his worst works is uh rising uh-huh. sun. And <laughs> but, but if you, if you're, if you're trying to get some context for what culture mm-hmm. was like at that time, it, it, it is an interesting one to yeah. watch. Cause you're going in this period. This will come back into play later. Like it's Reagan's America at this point in time in the early eighties when this movie's coming out. So uh, movies were in eighties movies at this point were like the ones that well were the more happy, like uplifting warm films and blade runner is does not fit any of those qualities um but yeah so i've always enjoyed this film i think it's just the what it does creatively uh aesthetically and 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 just i think i think harrison ford's great and and we'll talk more about that as we go so let's let's dive into the history of how this movie got to production because it's a long and winding road for it so after the release of George Lucas's Star Wars in 1977, Hollywood studios were searching for their science fiction blockbuster, and countless producers began optioning up science fiction novels to adapt to the big screen. And one of those popular novels was Frank Herbert's Dune. Now, Herbert's mm. novel was released in 1965, and it was instantly met with praise from critics and readers winning the prestigious Hugo Award, which was awarded to the best science fiction novel of the year. Now, Dune was a film property that even predated the production of Star Wars with the earliest talk arising in 1971. 
Several producers and directors would attempt to make the project, including famed British director David Lean, but most famously or most most <laughs> infamously, Alejandro Hodorowski attempted to turn the novel into a sprawling sci-fi epic that would run close to 14 hours. Now, the failed production of Hodorowski's Dune could be a whole podcast series in itself, so we're not going to spend any time on that. Go 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 watch the go watch the documentary. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's called that. Um, usually, you know that that movie failed. <laughs> it was not made, and producer uh, Dino De Laurentiis picked up the option of the novel in 1976, and he would soon commission a script. And by 1979, he hired up-and-coming British director Ridley Scott to helm the project. Now, Scott had just recently gained credibility after the international success of. His second film, Alien, which was released in 1979 as well. Which Alien it was majorly influenced by, by well, Jodorowsky's Dune. Oh, was it? it was all, he, he also oh, said yeah. he wanted to make Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space, is what he said, too. Well, most, of, most of the art team just rolled. When, it, was when, Ge- it, was Ge- it was Geiger, right? Yeah, H.R. Geiger. Uh, yeah, yes, and, 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 when, and when Dune went down, it, Geiger and then like most of the team that he yes. had assembled just rolled right it's onto Alien. Correct. Alien. So a lot of influence, I think it was Geiger. I think Dan O'Bannon. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dan O'Bannon was on Dune as um, well. Yeah. So Scott planned to adapt Dune into a two-part film, and he would work on a total of three drafts with the film's writers. However, Ridley was going through a difficult time in his life. His older brother, Frank, had just recently passed away from, I think, skin cancer during the film's pre-production. And Ridley had said that he was not close to his brother when he was growing up. I think his brother basically joined the Navy at the age of 16, and was in the Navy for like 10 years. And so Ridley did not become close with him until much later on in life. And not long after he became close to his brother, Frank, he would soon be diagnosed with cancer. Uh, in 2002, uh, Scott told the guardian when he was ill, I used to go and visit him in London. And that was really traumatic for me. And Scott soon realized that he was not in the right mindset to tackle this large film and he knew that the film was kind of going to take another two and a half years of his life. So, like, he had finished Alien, he had done all this, and now he was kind of being a little more introspective on his life after the death of his brother. So he told De Laurentiis that he was leaving and moving on. And Scott still wanted to direct something, but he wanted to direct something fast, is what it was. Now that mm-hmm. now that Doom was off the plate, he would then jump over to another science fiction property, They've been trying to get off the ground for several years, almost a decade. And that was the adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Sleep of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. I'm gonna get that name right <laughs> by the end of this podcast. While while not as popular as Dune, the works of Philip K. Dick were very popular in the sci-fi community. Dick had been writing since the early 1950s, but he broke out on the sci-fi scene with the man in the high castle in 1962, which won him the Hugo Award, which I talked about with Dune earlier. And even though he wrote consistently through the 1960s, the next big hit that was released in 1969 was Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Now, after the release of the book, several big names contemplated adapting the book into a film. The biggest being Martin Scorsese, who met with Dick to talk Mm. about it, but would not option the rights. The book would finally be optioned in the early 1970s by producer Herb Jaffe, and he would have his son Robert write the first draft of the script. Uh, they sent the script to Philip K. Dick, who was highly unimpressed. And when Jaffe went to visit him, Dick met him at the airport and said, 
Should I beat you up at the airport or should I beat you back up at my apartment? And it seems not long after that, the options would lapse. Now, during this time, <laughs> Hampton Fancher, an actor who with hopes of becoming a screenwriter, attempted to get the rights to this project. He had attempted in the mid-70s because he, ha he had a hunch, he said, that sci-fi was about to take off in Hollywood. Now, Fancher was an actor through the 1960s, really riding the wave of television, specifically westerns. And he had acted in such shows as Gunsmoke, Lawman, Rawhide, Have Gun Will Travel, and Maverick. You name it, he was probably in it then. So he tried to get the rights. The only issue was that he could not find Philip K. Dick. No one seemed to know how to get in touch with Dick. Uh, he would then give up. He would give up until one day he was walking through Beverly Hills when he met famed author Ray Bradbury, and he asked mm. him, "Hey, do you know? Do you do know, know Philip K. Dick? <laughs> Ray Bradbury, I love your work. Do you know, do you know Dick? Philip K. Dick? Because apparently, uh, one of his friends, said, hey, you should adapt one of Ray Bradbury's books. He goes, that's not the sci-fi I'm looking for. And so then he meets Ray Bradbury. Mm. He's like, hey, do you have, do you have Philip K. Dick's info? And Bradbury did. And he gave Fancher the, the phone number. He contacted Dick, which initially led to a meeting. And Dick would tell him, hey, the rights aren't free because of the Jaffe deal. Um, however, three years later, these rights would lapse and Fancher would attempt to again to buy the rights for Dick's novel. He would then contact his friend Brian Kelly to help land the rights for this film. Like Fancher, Kelly was an actor from the 1960s, his most famous role being he was the lead role, the dad role in the hit television show Flipper. Is what it was that ran uh -huh. for three seasons. And but Kelly's acting career had tragically come to an end in 1970 after a terrible motorcycle accident that had made him paralyzed in his right arm and leg. Now, Kelly, this would lead to like a massive settlement due to the accident, resulting in $750,000 awarded to Kelly. He would then take that money put it into building houses houses and film producing and one of the first properties he would option would be do androids dream of electric sheep as his first kind of big deal allowing his friend fancher to write it and fancher would write several drafts of the script he said he wasn't actually a fan of dick's novel but he felt that it had a solid through line of a detective dealing with all these philosophical issues so he soon began changing a lot of the story um, according, according to him in an interview with Sloan Science and Film, the script would eventually land at Universal Pictures with Oscar-nominated director Robert Mulligan attached to, to the project as a director with the $8 million budget. Mulligan, I think we talked about before previously on, on the Alan Pakula episode, episode, Mulligan was his partner, uh, producing partner, but Mulligan directed such films mm -hmm. as Kill Mockingbird is what it was, and Summer 42, uh, the other love of the proper stranger films like that mulligan also mm -hmm. it's funny mulligan a guy whose name is not really known nowadays missed out on directing blade runner and also was attached at one point to direct taxi driver oh wow two big films he missed out on and 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 i think just had issues with the script at the time and, and would end up leaving um apparently <laughs> this version of the movie was incredibly small only taking place in a few rooms and this deal would fall through. And soon soon after this, or maybe around this time, producer by the name of Michael Dealey got involved. And Dealey had just won an Oscar for producing Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter. So he was kind of a mm. pretty hot name at this time. And he suggested to Fancher to offer the script to Ridley Scott. 
and this is when Ridley Scott comes back into the story. And I think I've I've heard they offered it to Ridley earlier in the in the late seventies, but he turned it down to do Dune instead. And then it came back around. He decided to do it. Um, Fancher, however, was hesitant about taking about giving the project to Scott because he didn't see Scott as an actor's director. He felt he focused too much on the scenery and not enough on the actors, which he thought was necessary for this type of project. Because again, at this point, it's still in only a few rooms. Um, mm-hmm. Dealey said that if, atta- if they attach Ridley Scott to the project, it would be financed in a minute in Hollywood because he was so hot at that time. And it would be his first American film because he had yet to actually come over from England at this point. Alien was shot in England. Um, Fancher mm-hmm. agreed to meet with Ridley Scott at the Beverly Hills Hotel for breakfast one day. And it seems people were keeping tabs on either Scott or the project because by the end of the day, four different investors offered to invest in the project just by this seeing them at a meeting at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Uh, Scott would soon begin working on the script with Fancher and Ridley said that Fancher's draft dealt more with environmental issues and less with humanity and religion, which is what Scott really wanted to explore and was thought was more present in Dick's novel. He also said because of the death of his brother, Scott was looking to explore the idea of pain and how to deal with pain in this movie. Mm. So while writing, Scott asked Fancher, what exactly is Deckard? And Fancher replied, he's a detective. And Scott was like, but what kind of detective is he? And Fancher told Vulture in 2017 that after Scott left his place that night, after asking him this question, after months of working together, that he began looking through his books on his bookshelf to find this small book named The Blade Runner, a movie by William S. Burroughs. And this book was actually a film treatment of an earlier sci-fi novel by, uh, by the, from a writer by the name of Alan E. Norse. And Fancher loved this name for a character. And that's what he pitched mm-hmm. to Scott and Scott loved it as well. And that became the name of what Deckard actually is, is his profession. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting too, that he kind of has a Western background because Deckard's like a, a weird combination. A Blade Runner is like a weird combination between a detective and a bounty exactly. hunter. Like you exactly. don't, you don't really have that's a purely Western thing. Like you don't really have bounty hunters in detective movies. Um, no one's ever like go out and find this guy and, and shoot yeah. to kill. Because <laughs> that's what he's doing. He's searching for people to kill them. Is what it is. It's like mm-hmm. to basically like it's not a, a, a reward. It seems like, but it is kind of like. We need you're the only one who can do it. We got to get we got to get the old gunslinger back to kind of get these guys is what it kind of mm-hmm. feels like that this required them to actually buy the rights. The name of Blade Runner is what it was. Uh, and eventually it would become the new title for the film. At one point, it was actually going to be called Dangerous Days. Instead Ooh. of Blade Runner, that would later be the title for the making of documentary they made for the tw- 2007 release on on the home video for like a, 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 pr- a three and a half hour long documentary, by the way, on, on this movie. <laughs> so Scott and Fancher would soon butt heads during the writing process of Blade Runner. If you couldn't tell that was going to happen, uh, Fancher was pushing back on Scott's demands. When talking with Vanity Fair in 2017, Scott said he didn't like the script was mostly indoors and he wanted to show more of the world. He wanted to get his, he wanted to get his world building on Thomas is what t- really Scott was wanting to do, which yeah. is, if you know Ridley Scott, not at all surprising. Um, so Fancher <laughs> was also known to be a slow rewriter. 
kind of taking his time with it. Michael Dealey nicknamed him Happen Faster instead of Hampton Fancher. Fancher <laughs> would say that Scott was full of ideas and that every day it was changing and they were constantly disagreeing with one another about these ideas. Dealey would then go behind Fancher's back and hire another writer who also had no credits at that point to rewrite the script with Fancher without, without Fancher knowing about it. Uh, and that was David Webb Peoples, who was actually recommended by Tony Scott, Ridley's brother. Um, it seems mm-hmm. one reason why Fancher was not like outright fired and had to go behind his back was that Fancher, because he was heavily involved in the development of the movie from the very beginning, he was given executive producer credit. So they couldn't actually fire him, it seems. They could just like send him away, basically. It was, it was very odd. Mm-hmm. Um, so Peoples had been working as an editor on low-budget documentaries in the 1970s, but he was wanting to write screenplays. He was doing it on the side. One of his screenplays he actually wrote in 1976 was a revenge western that would not be made and released until 1992 under the title Unforgiven. Unforgiven. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, he wrote Unforgiven. Uh, him and his wife, wife, Janet, would later co-write 12 Monkeys. But this, this was oh. his first script to actually get made um when talking when talking with screencraft people said i was coming in to do what ridley wanted he let me do a lot of things on my own but really i was brought on the movie i was brought on to move the script in the direction of of what ridley wanted uh peoples would change several things the script but one of the main things he added was the term replicant people thought people thought the word android sounded funny ridley hated it and they needed something to replace it so at the time, Peoples' daughter was studying microbiology and biochemistry, and she told him about the theory of replication, which is when cells are duplicated from the pur- for the purposes of cloning. And that's when Replicant entered into the story. So it was now 1980, and it seems like there were two scripts being done, one by Fancher and one by Peoples. Peoples got himself into a room at the Chateau Marmont in Hollywood and was just writing and rewriting <laughs> daily, trying to keep up with Scott's endless notes and ideas about the script. It was around Christmas that year when Fancher went to dinner with one of Scott's assistants who handed him a script and Fancher was reading it, thinking it was this new movie that they were working on. And then he soon realized it was a rewritten Blade Runner. And he told Randy Fair in 2017 that he started crying, stood up and started crying about this. And the assistant told him he understood that it sucked, but he said, if you don't do what really wants, he'll get someone who did, who do, who can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fancher would later storm into the production office, confronting Dealey, which Dealey replied, elegance is one thing, Hampton, making a film is another. And so Fancher stormed out and left and went to his house in Carmel and went away from the production. I think would later come back and do a few rewrites, but and so I was involved also too. Spoiler alert: he ends up writing Blade Runner twenty forty nine as well, so he's still involved with Scott, and that's what they made amends later on. So with the script somewhat ready, they began discussing a possible cast. Now Fancher initially envisioned Robert Mitchum for the role of Deckard, and Mitchum was in his early 60s at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, Scott and Dealey had a very different idea. They were looking to cast one of the biggest actors in Hollywood at that time, and that was Dustin Hoffman. Uh-huh. Scott and Dealey met with Hoffman about the project, and he apparently talked their ears off about the character and about cryogenics and everything that's involved in this film. And 
they would soon realize after a few weeks, they became annoyed by Hoffman's enthusiasm and what he wanted to do with this character. I think Dealey said they, it felt like they were drifting into an endless ocean with him and they would soon part ways with Dustin <laughs> Hoffman. Uh, at some point, I believe they offered the role to Martin Sheen, but he turned it down, allegedly due to being so exhausted from Apocalypse Now. Uh, <laughs> Poor yeah. Martin Sheen. Feels like most of the 80s. Yeah, it's for, like, I, I can't Sheen. do this. It's, it reminds me too much of Apocalypse Now. Um, so according to Hampton Fancher, the first person to suggest Harrison Ford for the role was his then-girlfriend, Barbara Hershey. Uh, at mm. this point, Ford had yet to have a mega hit with him as the leading man because people didn't count Star Wars. And Scott and <laughs> Dealey would then visit London after being invited by Steven Spielberg to see him while he was shooting Raiders of the Lost Ark. Within a few minutes of watching dailies, Scott and Dealey knew Ford was the guy to play Deckard. The only issue was that Ford was wearing a fedora and Scott really wanted Deckard to have a fedora in Blade Runner. And Dealey told him, we lost a hat, we gained a star. Uh, <laughs> between between Mitchum and the fedora, <laughs> I feel like this was at some point going to look a lot more like a traditional, a traditional detective movie than, than it actually did. And basically did. Ford was so scared about getting a hat, he went out and had a very contemporary haircut done. So that It's a good, it's it's a a good, good haircut. haircut. But he, he was like, I'm yeah. not wearing a hat. I'm not wearing a damn hat in this movie. <laughs> um, now, Fancher had written the role of Rachel for his then girlfriend, Barbara Hershey. But Scott was more interested in this young actress who had most recently starred in Stripes. And that was Sean mm -hmm. Young. She was like 21 at the time, I think, when the movie yeah. they cast her. Scott would cast Rucker Howard for Roy Batty. Uh, sight unseen. Apparently, someone like had talked him up so much that he's like, I'm going to cast him without seeing him. So yeah. Howard wanted to play a prank on Scott. And so the first time he showed up to meet him, I think at some place in Beverly Hills, Howard showed up, Howard showed up, showed up in a sweater, a white sweater with a fox on it, candy pink pants and El green Elton John sunglasses. And Scott <laughs> was like mortified. Like, who the hell is this guy? He is not this like uh, intimidating force that I was like pitched uh, initially. Mm -hmm. And now with the cast in place and the script in good shape, we're we actually can't move the production because something happened. The investors, the <laughs> investors have pulled out. Thomas, the investors have pulled out. It was supposed to be a twelve million dollar movie, and it's now twenty million dollars. And mm. indie com this indie company named Filmways, who was backing the movie, pulled their money out because it just gotten too high. They ended up putting it into, yeah. I believe, Brian De Palma's Blowout is what it was. So. No? Okay. Well, um, now Michael Dealey had two weeks to find enough money to make this project. Oh my God. He would have to broker a three-way deal for the budget. Um, they received $7.5 million from Alan Ladd Jr. and his company, the Ladd company. Ladd mm -hmm. had been fam had famously been known for Greenlang Star Wars at Fox and several other big films. So he, he was known for good taste. Uh, another seven and a half million came from a Hong Kong mogul by the name of Run Run Shaw. And the rest came from Jerry Paranchio, a former boxing promoter who later became the chairman of Univision, and his producing oh. partner, Bud Yorkin, who had been a writer-producer for Norman Lear. Because this duo was putting up a lot of the money, uh, they also were the completion bond guarantors, which meant that the film ran over budget, they would gain, gain control of it, taking it away from Ridley Scott and his team. Now we can move to 
to production, Thomas. And that leads us to favorite <laughs> scenes. So, Thomas, what's one of your favorite scenes in Blade Runner? I mean, you know, going back, it's it's probably that first scene I saw. And uh, all, all the stuff in the Bradbury it's building amazing. is yeah. incredible. But um, but it's, you know, that's when you're like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, Ridley Scott, you know, did some horror. Like, that. that yeah. is a really scary yeah. scene. You've got the little toys marching around and, and Decker doesn't have any idea well, what good. he's gotten himself into. Yeah. And and you've just got Daryl Hannah just like frozen in the middle of the room, like watching him. Yeah. And he has no idea she that she's yeah. there. And then that kind of leads directly into Roy kind of chasing him through through the apartment. But that 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 stuff is all so well done. And, and, and you know, the sets are so distinctive in this movie. And that so that that area is just such a you know it, it would be so easy to be like all right this is our vision for the future this is what everything looks like but the, you know the streets are different like deckard's apartment is so different than than anything else that we see the the stuff in the bradbury building is so it's it's wild it is such an incredibly well designed movie throughout mm-hmm. and you'll be shocked to hear what was supposed to happen in that ending um <laughs> yeah the, the end the ending is is like what's so what's so fascinating about this movie is that roy and deckard do not meet until the last like 10 minutes yep. of the movie like deckard it, like roy is this is this bookie man that deckard is trying to catch and roy is just a guy who's wanting to find a way to live basically that's yep. that's literally what it is mm-hmm. um he's he's a he's a villain that you by the end sympathize empathize with yeah he's he's not unreasonable yeah. but he's out of yeah. time and he has to do whatever he can by any means and that, necessary and and the thing you know the thing with howard is when you're when you're talking about casting that person sight unseen that's that's wild because roy has to be it's such a unique character he has to be in peak physical condition he has to be physically yeah. terrifying but he also has to be as I mean, that's that's the Intelle- whole thing about in- these replicants intellectual, there. basically. Yeah. As as smart as 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 smart as his creator, yeah. as smart as anyone. And that's that's the whole thing with replicants is they have this four year lifespan because they are far too that that's the only safe gap between them taking over because they are superior yeah. to humans. Um, and and so, he yeah, he's he's he's, he's got to be intimidating. He's got to be sympathetic. He's got to be physically scary but he's also smarter than than anyone else in the yeah. movie um so yeah it's a it's a tough it's a very very tough role and howard is fantastic in it which is why it's surprising <laughs> that he just got the blind casting which, and, and 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 such a like it's like how how to like how scary that would be as scott to do that like i i just also wouldn't i wouldn't fathom your first big really first big film in america and you're like, let me cast my lead villain without ever seeing or reading him at all, mm-hmm. and just see what happens. Um, you no, know, yeah, the, <laughs> but I, and I love, I love the like kind of beforehand. I love the character uh, Sebastian that William Sanderson mm-hmm. plays. Is kind of just like because like Roy and 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 his and the replicants like basically Sa- Sebastian has like he ages more than what he is, but he's aging old. He's aging faster. Right. And so he he understands Roy and his battle with time, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but to backtrack, I mean, I love the opening. The opening just like throws you right in to this world. The opening shot yeah. over Los Angeles. It's a, a, a literal hellscape. Yeah, it's the opening shot over Los Angeles into the 
the interrogation scene that they're doing the kind of um uh the mo- like the monitoring test they do for replicants is like just br- like just hot- throws you right into this world basically and then it jumps over and you're seeing Deckard in this neon drenched Los Angeles with rain everywhere eating like I guess Chinese food or whatever he's or Japanese food whatever he's <laughs> eating um and I and I love essentially when he ends up meeting Rachel like when they first kind of connect mm-hmm. and, and Tyrell's like just Egyptian like office essentially yeah and that's that's one of those scenes where you know it's so it's so noir yeah kinda, he, he's he's got to go interrogate this this guy and and he and he and his assistant his receptionist have this like banter mm-hmm. and yeah they're talking about androids and void comp tests mm-hmm. but but it's so the the kind of banner between them and the attraction between them is so detective noir from from the early yeah. days and, and she has this like 1940s like costume design to her and and hair, oh, hair. too like <laughs> it's like and, and they just and there's just this connection um with these two characters and it's a very different storyline for them than what was in dick's original novel because rachel's mm-hmm. in the novel but deckard's actually married in the novel is what it is and oh. he he's like trying to get enough money to buy like his wife a goat because animals are extinct in this world. That's why you have the reference of like, is that a replicant owl or whatever, or the, the snake that the, that the Joanne Cassidy has mm-hmm. that these, it, like, yeah. there's no animals in this world. So it's like hinted. At, yeah. She's like, you think yeah, I could afford a real exactly. snake. So it's hinted at in the movie, but like an original novel is like, there's no animals. So he's trying to get money to buy his wife uh, a snake. And he essentially kind of has like a, uh, he has sex with Rachel at one point and they kind of fall for one another, but she is more of like a, she really is more of a traditional femme fatale in the novel. Um, mm. by the end of it, um, not to spoil the novel, but like, <laughs> but yeah, so the, they, so based, I think it was Fancher and, and then, and, and then eventually peoples who made more changes to make it more of a romantic relationship. And I think they have a really good, like they have good chemistry in this movie. And I like Sean Young as Rachel because especially when she starts like having those self doubts about whether she, whether or not she's a replicant and she soon finds out that she mm-hmm. is. And she somehow believes she some, some, for some reason believes that Deckard is the one to relate to her the most is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I guess he did the test or he, I, I think she's, there's a darkness in him. And for some reason she's connected to that maybe. She can fix him. I don't know. Um, he's also he's Harrison, he's Harrison Ford. Ford. You know? That's the thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and I like the scene when he tells her she's a replicant, and it starts and like talking mm-hmm. about like the memories of how like those are Tyrell's nieces that died. Like you're supposed to look like her. Like these are all implants. Yeah, she's got her pictures. Yeah. Pictures are so important in this. Yeah, they keep gives, um, the other guy is like, yeah, I gotta get my pictures. I gotta go back and get my pictures. And some guy mm-hmm. was already there. The pictures are you're right are very important in this kind of world for them. Um, yeah. and what's another scene that you like in the movie? Um, I, I really like, uh, I really like anything out on the streets. I mean, I think the, the, the design is great on the streets, but I love one of my favorite, just, just from a pure, like world building, pulling everything off is when he's, when he gets the call about, uh, I think it's when he gets the call about Tyrell, but he's like out in the car 
and the guys are like stealing his yeah, stealing his tires and that that cop car comes and like lands like near him and i mean it's full car on a on a wire yeah. or something that just lowers down and like this this area shut down he's like i'm working and then they 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 leave him but it's just the the little like sci-fi flavor in this movie yeah. is is insane how well done because at is. this point it's like you've had star wars yes and you've had certain movies that come out but like with every one star wars there's like five movies that just look horrible is it like for sci- <laughs> you know what I mean? Like with the, the, just look, they yeah. like you're in front of a green screen and you're on wires, and bla- just to say back to when I first saw it in that trailer, it just looks so modern. Like even mm-hmm. the visual effects, Douglas Trumbull did a lot of the special effects of this, who did 2001 and everything. Um, the the effects are just still jaw dropping to this day. Like it was smart. This is jumping ahead, mm-hmm. but like it was smart when Ridley Scott in the 2000s when he did the final cut like he he basically chose not to touch up any of the main like effects so the effects were all set basically everyone like praised him because he didn't do a george lucas and add all these things but it it felt so modern already like it's like it, it, you felt it felt tactile i guess you could say in in its in its world mm-hmm. um also to again it can't be understated uh or overstated rucker Hauer comes in in this back half of this movie and just almost steals the whole movie like yeah. it's just he's yeah. amazing in that yeah yeah obviously you know uh the Tears final the his final monologue is is iconic for for a yeah. reason it is um it's so well written but it's it's even better delivered uh-huh. um <laughs> i feel like you've got a story i there. do have a story there <laughs> um and I, and I do love, I, you know, that's that even more so probably than his final monologue. I think the the kind of because he started the, the whole thing with Roy is like by the time Deckard kind of meets up with him, he's he's really starting to break yeah. down. He's he's he's, he, you know, maybe got hours left and he's he's also just kind of emotionally distraught from losing everyone. But um, I think the scene with him and Tyrell is is probably Roy at his yes. best because it's it is all about he is he's meeting his equal. He's meeting his maker. Yeah the only man who might be as smart as yeah. him and and it's got that kind of it's got his, his his kind of melancholy it's got his his power it's got his his violence mm-hmm. uh it, it's all it's all there and it's kind of equally tragic and terrifying at the yeah. same time no and, and again it's like I, I love with with kind of tyrell with those scenes it's the it's the ones it's the two times you feel like warmth in the movie but just by the mm-hmm. visual style of it and I know in Blade Runner twenty forty nine they kind of carry that style over where like gold kind of yellow like colors are what when you're dealing with like the rich overlords basically, um, mm-hmm. and and it's that water effect they add like the, like the kind of like ocean effect when you like when you watch the 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 walls like it's like the the lights moving like you're in water mm-hmm. basically it's really so really cool and and you see and again. It's at Howard's eyes are just so striking and visual, essentially um, mm-hmm. hypnotic. And yeah, and, and Joe Turkle as Tyrell is also fantastic. Turkle, we've talked about previously on, was in a lot of uh, Kubrick's movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a Kubrick he, guy. He, he just passed away this year at the age of eight ninety four. Here, in, not yeah. Wow. I th- I, I've always heard stories that he would like be at a bar near, like in Santa Monica, just like telling stories to people a lot of the time. Hmm. Um, I think the only other the only other one I've got is um, 
I, I really love, uh, we'll talk about this a little later, I, I, I don't necessarily love the way that, that the kind of seduction scene plays out between... I didn't uh, either. I Decker didn't like it <laughs> and, and, and Rachel, but I do I do love when she plays the piano. Yes. I think that is such a, a, a beautiful moment in the way that she's... I think that's, that's, that's such a... That really gets kind of to the heart of or to the soul of this yeah. story is is you know what 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 makes you human do you, you know what what distinguishes and 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 a lot of it is like memory but it's also kind of this idea of a soul mm-hmm. and when rachel sits down and plays the piano and he's like that was good and she's like i had no idea if i could play yeah. or not i remember being able to play but who knows who knows whose talent yeah. that is and um that that i think that's such a such a great moment in the the, the music i mean the music's great yeah. throughout but yeah, no, um, the music the, yeah the score is phenomenal the last thing i i have to say is is the i like the chase with with zora salome like the dancer or whatever with the snake that's mm-hmm. and that i want i want to bring that up now because there's a story that comes with it later but she joanna cassie's great in that scene harrison ford it's kind of the one time he kind of plays comedic in the whole movie with his nerdy nerdy voice yeah that reminds me of uh of um uh last crusade when yeah. he said we're here to see the tapestries <laughs> well here again we haven't talked about him that much in this in the section but harrison ford is just like you sometimes forget he's a superstar you know what i mean like he's mm-hmm. so charismatic but he can so just like try to be a character actor for a moment but he's harrison ford and he, he's he's so grounded. I mean, I think that's why I think that's why so many genre directors gravitated towards him in the seventies and the eighties is he grounds your movie and and it can be you can go as wild as you want. Harrison Ford's kind of grounded. And that's something we we talked about with um with Mosquito Coast. It was like he almost grounds too that much. movie too much. It's like it's, it's this is supposed to be kind of absurd and, and Schrader and this guy's supposed to be spiraling off into insanity and it's like Harrison Ford's you're like yeah he's, he's still got a grip on things like um but but yeah you know it's just it's Han Solo it's Indiana Jones it's Deckard it's just like no matter how crazy things get if you have Harrison Ford at the center it's still gonna feel real it's still gonna feel authentic yeah. and yeah he and he yeah he's phenomenal and and he and it's it's a great run in this 80s period honestly for him like may not financially for, this is like one of the we'll talk this later one of the bigger lesser films in terms of money wise but like just a a massive run of this period Mm -hmm. so let's move to onset life so first off an actor strike apparently gave the art department plenty of extra time to develop the design of the movie Uh Uh, pre-production lasted nine and a half months with more than 400 carpenters painters and plasterers who worked on the sets 18 hours per day seven days a week during uh, a a five five and a half month period during that pre-production time so pretty much right when production started, conflicts arose on set. Um, the first scene that was <laughs> shot was to take place in Tyrell's office, which is when when uh, when Deckard meets Rachel. So when Scott walked in, he soon he soon finds out that the columns in the office were built upside down, uh, and he won them back the way they should be, which took several hours. And after two weeks of shooting. He decided, I don't like the lighting of this scene. So he made them reshoot the entire scene. So now, two weeks into production, they are two weeks behind schedule. Already. Um, oh, my God. And it also created kind of a major conflict between Scott and the camera crew, which was headed by Jordan Cronenwith. And, and, and it became soon became known that Scott's perfectionism 
would become a problem on this set. It would cause massive delays in changing the set, changing the light, doing several takes, and printing off those takes, even though he knew they'd be unused, causing the budget to inflate. When looking at this movie, kind of the story storyline of the production of it, it's these little things that happen that end up adding to become a big budget killer. It's like it's mm. that it's the changing the this because the lights are are printing off extra scenes of takes you know you don't need. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the other things was like it was a scene where like they built this like twenty thousand dollar head for Joe Turkle for when Rucker Hauer like presses his eyes in mm-hmm. and it didn't work. And so they're just like, oh, oh let's no. just let's just let how well, let's just let uh, Turkle be in it. And, and Howard's like, I'll just do it that way. So they had to build these other tubes that kind of come up that shoot out of his like shoot out of the side of his head for the eyes that they're bleeding. So they spent twenty thousand dollars on this and they didn't <laughs> use. So a lot of that happened. Um, and also pretty soon, Scott and Ford would not be getting along when making this movie. Um, it seems Fancher's earlier thoughts about Scott about not be, him not being an actor's director would come true. And as we just talking about Ford, unlike other superstars, Ford was known for being very collaborative when it came to working on a character. He wanted to he wanted to get feedback from the director. He wanted to discuss stuff with with the director. I think one of the most fascinating things I've seen in terms of like an actor's prep is I think it was either Raiders or one of the Indiana Jones where it was just a page of of Harrison Ford's script. And like you just saw how much work he was, which most actors do this, but you saw how much work he was doing, like marking through lines, asking questions on every line of like, there's like a line that someone, he, like uh, Indiana mentions God. And he's like, is Indy a believer? Is he, is he, fa- is he believe in faith? Does he, does he have faith? It's mm-hmm. like, he, and that's just one page of a massive script. And so Ford's very, like, I say he almost feels like he could be a character actor in a superstar's mold, essentially. Uh, Mm -hmm. but Scott really just cared about the look of the film and felt like I hired actors. I don't need to kind of tell them what to do. And Scott would spend most of his time in like a video village makeup, essentially, um, instead of talking with the actors. One of the biggest issues that Scott and Ford would disagree on was if Deckard was a replicant. Ford was very adamant the audience needed a human character to relate to and that Deckard should not be a replicant. Scott told Ford he agreed, but then would secretly start shooting scenes and sequences and let that left hints about Ford's about Deckard's <laughs> replicant like question. And if and he left it ambiguous. It wasn't until they were shooting the final scene when Ford when uh Deckard leaves with Rachel with the or with the unicorn origami when Ford realized what Scott was doing <laughs> and he yells, Damn it, I thought we agreed I wasn't a replicant. Um <laughs> And even even till the like later two thousands, when like Scott's like, oh, I think he's a replicant. Ford's like, I'm kind of pissed. I don't think he is. We agreed he wasn't. Why does he keep doing? Even Rucker Howard was like upset that Scott came out and said that 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 uh, Deckard was a replicant. So he felt like it hurt his character as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, by the summer because they started shooting this in eighty one, the cast and crew were becoming incredibly tired after working more than fifty nights. Because again, all this was nights. All of it. Ford said that it took weeks for them to get into full vampire mode and they'd be shooting till 6 a.m. each day. Um, Equipment would soon start to malfunction as Mildude covered the props from all the rain that was happening on set. Costumes Mm -hmm. had to constantly be replaced because of the rain. Fingers 
It's a very wet yes. set. It is, Fingers yeah. started to prune and tempers began to flare. One crew member related complaint about working on Blade Runner that was like being trapped in a Pennsylvania coal mine. Um, and like there were several times when like like the rain caused a lot of like certain injuries on set. There was, I think, one of the scenes when man the ending or something when Ford is trying to jump uh from one place they had stunt the stunt coordinator do that do that kind of jump and because it, it his costumes were so wet he didn't like add on the extra weight it would do when he did the jump so he like barely caught the thing he was reaching for um daryl hannah and one of the scenes you meet sebastian she run or she slides in the water and like her elbow goes through mm-hmm. like uh a window yeah the car window yeah Sebastian's not supposed car, to happen yeah. And apparently, Ooh. as of 2007, still had scars from that, uh, from from Eesh. from that thing. So it was real glass. Um, and again, Scott just became obsessed with every single shot. Um, an example of this would be when or when he was doing the scene wh- where Daryl Hannah is doing the flips, and he hired a a female gymnast to do all the flips. But apparently, Scott rehearsed it so many times. She was too exhausted to do the actual scene when it came to her. So they actually had to hire a male gymnast to <laughs> do the scene instead of the woman they hired. Um, also, in terms of things adding up, they hired Sid Mead to design the vehicles and props. And he also designed the sketches of the backgrounds. And Scott loved it so much, he became impressed with it. Or he, he wanted to use it. And he sent it to the art department to kind of create matte paintings of it. Um, Mead was only supposed to work for a few days. He stayed on the production for several weeks with the fee of $1,500 a day. So, again, it's the little things that add up. Mm-hmm. Soon, because it was really Scott's first American film, he discovered that he didn't really love how the American crews operated compared to the British crews. Uh, in the UK, Scott was actually his main, he was the primary camera operator, and he didn't like that he couldn't operate the camera on an American set. Hmm. He apparently was also changing the set so much. Screenwriter David Peoples, who was asked to rewrite the screenplay while on the shoot, often found that his rewrites were already obsolete by the time he handed them in because Scott was changing so much. One of the biggest issues that arose was an interview that came out in the UK press where Scott said the English crews were better because he would just tell them what he wanted and they would say, yes, governor, and then do it. (laughs) One of the crew members found this article, made copies, and passed it around to the entire crew by putting it at the craft services table. This is when what became known as the T-shirt war started. Uh, the film's makeup supervisor made up 60 T-shirts that said that read, Yes, Governor, my ass, while, while oh my others God. said, Will Rogers never met Ridley Scott. And like me, Scott didn't know what that meant. And he asked someone, and they told him that Will Rogers' motto was, I never met a man I didn't like. <laughs> so Will Rogers never met Ridley Scott. Uh, Scott would become upset, thinking this was hurting the crew's morale. No shit. Um, and him and his <laughs> British, British crew began wearing shirts that read, Xenophobia sucks. And he also wore a hat that had governor on it. Oh, my God. Apparently, that cooled off everything. <laughs> Like oh this guy get, okay he can, he can, he can make joke. a he can he can dish yeah. out a t-shirt as well as he can take it. I was like, okay, I was like right. really that's what call it, that made it easier. Um, and if you're not surprising, uh, not surprised, producer Jerry Parancino Par- and Buddy Yorkin be- began to grow upset with Scott, believing he was wasting money and their time. <laughs> uh, they were expecting 
and they were wanting a rip-roaring Star Wars action film. And they soon realized they were getting this dreary dystopian future with an alcoholically character. Um, And as money was running out, the production got even more nightmarish with the film's final day going into... I'm going to see how many guess how many hours do you think the final day was is from what this Vanity Fair article says. 18. No. D- 16. Double 18. Longer. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus. 36 hours. No. To shoot the film's climactic face off between Howard, Rucker Howard and Harrison Ford. Oh no. Um, apparently. So a lot, a lot of different stories regarding this kind of ending. Um, for one, the original ending was supposed to be in an old gym. Like there was going to be a, a martial arts fight between Harrison Ford and Rucker Hauer. And Hauer disliked it saying it was too Bruce Lee. And it was, he said that it was him that came up with the idea for, for Roy to chase Deckard through the Bradbury building. Hmm. Um, also Rucker Howard, apparently there's, there's been different stories of this about how this came about but at some point whatever happened rutger howard did not like the final monologue that was written for him oh no so he basically cut it all out and wrote at least improvised his final lines oh wow of all these moments will be lost in time time. like tears in rain rain. so that was his line that he added to the story And he also added the the dove as well. He wanted to have mm. a dove. Um, talking about the rain, the dove was supposed to fly away. I don't know if it does in this cut. The dove was mm-hmm. supposed to fly away, but the dove was so covered in rain from being wet so much, it could not fly away. So it just like hobbles off, basically. Mm. Um, it, do- it does fly away in the final cut, but it's not. It's probably the worst effect in, in the yeah, movie. Yeah, so, that, so it was supposed to it just, it just hobbled off. And apparently while shooting uh the the final scene two stunt doubles had been injured while making the jump during the movie's climax so Hauer asked for the gap to be tightened a bit and he did the jump instead mm-hmm. he said he had to excuse himself from set at some point because he was so exhausted he went back to his hotel and collapsed is what it was um so yeah so also two other shooting basically those producers were like over scott's like back like ready to shut the production down and take it over which is why they're doing for 36 hours because they knew if they stopped they would lose the movie is what it was Mm -hmm. um apparently at one point i I heard stories that they were over his shoulder at some points uh, while on set saying you can move on you don't need any more takes (laughs) um harrison ford cites the movie as one of his most frustrating uh, he ever met uh, that he ever did partly because the shoot was so grueling and we'll come back into play a little bit later about the voiceover but with all that it finally wrapped and that moves us into aftermath and the day mm-hmm. after the production finally wrapped scott and the principals were received a telegram stating they were no longer on the production <laughs> after the production wrapped however scott kept working on the movie without compensation to edit the film and so let's bring it back to Philip K. Dick here, because Philip K. Dick, which I've not mentioned while making this, uh, he at first was not very happy they were making this into a movie. He publicly criticized the early version of the script he read from Hampton Fancher uh, on like a TV guide like show. Um, mm-hmm. Also saying that he didn't like he didn't think that Ridley Scott was the director for the movie, that he didn't think he was right for it. 
um, essentially, I think it was Alan Ladd and his company, because Alan Ladd was very, it seems like, hands-on in certain ways. He knew how to handle talent, knew how to handle people, mm-hmm. but they got one of the publicists for their company to essentially get they want to dick on their side in case of publicity for them when, when the movie came out they want him to kind of promote the movie they didn't want him bad mouthing it before it came out so basically they kept showing him all the like updates of like the visuals and the sketches and and like the look of the character the actors so like i think he really like fell for like sean young is what it was and they were sort of like he loved her so much he wanted to meet her but it was almost like kind of weird of how much he wanted to meet her and they're like we're not going to have you meet her um and he loved Harrison Ford's look by the end of it. And then by the end of shooting, and they started kind of doing the visual effects for it, Ridley Scott brought him in to watch the first 20 minutes of the movie. And they would make amends. Philip K. Dick would watch the, the opening of the film and was essentially floored by it and said, you somehow captured what was in my head. Um, wow. tragically, tragically, he would die four months before the movie was released. Yeah. So he never actually saw it, the full version but the movie was dedicated to him once it was released. So they did the first edit of the movie. And can you guess how long the first cut of the movie was, Thomas? Three and a half. Four hours. Four hours. Okay. <laughs> Most of the crew, including the writers, admit, and even Ridley Scott admitted that it looked beautiful, but the story made no sense. <laughs> um, and so that's when they start. They, they cut it down two and a half hours and they tested the movie um, in two different cities, I believe. One of which was Denver. Um, apparently the, the test screen did not go well and, uh, it was disastrous to the point where everyone's saying, I don't understand it. What is happening in this movie? So Jerry Paranchio and Buddy Orkin insisted on adding a voiceover narration. Now the voiceover was actually present in the original script, but Harrison Ford kept pushing back on it saying we don't need a voiceover it doesn't work let it all play out visually this is this doesn't make sense mm-hmm. to have a voiceover but they are wanting to be like a 1940s detective novel like noir where he's narrating it so ford didn't want to do it finally they forced him to do it because of his contract and they i think peoples had written a version and hampton had written a version but those two two producers didn't use either of them and had someone else write a version which Ford hated. And he apparently like was, he, he talked about how it was so awkward while doing it. And he didn't want to do it. Some actually believe he like botched the acting of it because he was not doing a great, he was not doing a great job with it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he did, he denied that. So he actually did try to do it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was, he was not a fan and all basically even in later years, he said, I don't remember most of the grueling stuff. The thing I remember most is that I had to do this shitty voiceover narration that I hated, and I only did it because they made me to it. He basically said it was written by clowns, is what it was. And when the movie came out with the narration, Peoples and Fancher thought the other person, because they were friends at this point, thought the other one wrote it, but they both thought it was bad, but didn't tell the other one they thought it was bad. They said, oh, great job on the narration that you did. <laughs> so yeah, the other big thing after the test screen was the producers wanted a happy ending they didn't like this ending that was kind of ambiguous of what happens to Deckard and Rachel. So instead of him leaving with the with the unicorn origami and then walking out the door, they wanted a happier ending of them driving off into the mountains to this secluded area, running away in love together. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so they went off and shot another scene of them doing that, which, by the way, Ford did not like. Um, and they ended up doing it, but they needed they needed shots for the mountains and stuff. They didn't want a bigger kind of landscape. And so they went to Stanley Kubrick, and they used unused footage from The Shining for this ending. What? Yeah. The, from the opening of the shining when they're coming in with the mountains and, and Jack's car. So they mm-hmm. use these, some of these shots for this ending. Um, so yeah. And Kubrick let him do it because he loved Ridley Scott's alien is what it was. Um, the film. Would, yeah. The film would finally <laughs> be released on June 25th, 1982, the same weekend, I believe as John Carpenter's the thing, which we talked about last year. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about last year, there was a specific movie that killed both these films at the box office. Can you remember which movie killed this film? These two films, at the box office. No, I don't. It, it had been released two weeks prior and it was a massive hit that dominated the box office for months. Hmm. That would be Steven Spielberg's E.T. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. I do remember the thing versus E.T. E.T. So again, think about like it's in the early eighties. Everything's kind of like happy go lucky. We're wanting warm kind of feelings E.T. comes out, family film kind of dominates the, the box office and Blade Runner and the thing quickly kind of go down. Blade Runner makes $6 million opening weekend, which is fine, but E.T. just kind of hammers it away or knocks it out of the box office pretty soon afterwards. Um, critics were mixed to positive. Um, Ebert gave the, Roger Ebert gave the star th- or the film three stars in its initial run saying it was a while technical achievement it had very little interest in its characters um he would later uh reappraise it when the final cut came out giving it four stars um mm. apparently the 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 uh dig that hurt the most came from Pauline Kale they said when she said Scott seems to be trapped in his own alleyways without a map regarding the film so she wow. was she was rather mixed on the movie the film would be would be labeled a misfire and a failure only grossing 33 million dollars on a budget that ballooned to a reported $28 million. Um, and so we thought it would, it would go away, be lost in time, like tears in the rain. But within a few years, Blade <laughs> Runner began to kind of pop up with people. And uh, Fancher uh, comments that he, or in the Vanity Fair article, he said he was recognized by a clerk at a bookstore in New York city. And they're like, Oh my God, you're Hampton Fancher we have a Blade Runner club. And he's like, what is that? <laughs> and they soon realized that it was becoming a cult classic. People were doing midnight screenings of it. The rise of VHS really helped out the movie. When Laserdisc came up, it became one of the top sellers of in Laserdisc in 89. People like uh, Christopher Nolan found it. He said he watched a pirated tape of it at his teacher's house. He said it was a terrible quality, but absolutely got, it got hooks in me, got its hooks in me and never left. Denis Villeneuve said that he watched a French dubbed version uh, when he was 14 years old and was, and just loved the look of it and the music mm-hmm. of it. Um, it would soon get showings. So I think at one point they discovered a, a, a copy of the movie, a print of the movie, uh, a 70 millimeter print. And they showed it thinking it was like going to be the, the original theatrical cut, but it was a completely different cut of the movie, but it still had, um, uh, I think it didn't have the voiceover, didn't have the happy ending. Mm-hmm. And so they showed it at the new art actually here in LA and San Francisco and became this massive hit. 
They would try to do a director's cut, which reinstated the unicorn scene, which was not present in the 92 in the night or the, the work print version or the original theatrical version. People were confused by the unicorn scene. Didn't like it. They cut it out. They added <laughs> it back in. So for the director's cut, they tried to get Ridley's do all of Ridley's notes for it. But Ridley was doing, I think 1492 is what it was. So he didn't, they didn't do all of his notes. So that's when 2007 rolls around they do a final cut of the movie where Ridley is pretty much hands-on from start to finish on the entire look of it. Um, Ford also for that, for that blue for that home video release had refused to talk about the movie anytime before that, before 2007 saying Hmm. it was one of the most grueling films of his career. As I said, he didn't want to talk about it. They finally were able to bring him back out to talk about the movie in 2007. And then he would later do the sequel later around 2049. Um, and as I said, it was actually, it's a rare misfire for Harrison Ford in the middle of this time, um, basically coming right in between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Return of the Jedi. Um, mm-hmm. But again, the movie of Blade Runner has kind of continued and I think grows every year. And even the, the sequel, as we talked about when we did a few years ago, <laughs> suffered the film's same fate, where yeah. it was a failure at the box office, but has since been, been reappraised and is now considered probably one of the best of that year. So anyway, Thomas, let's move down, move on to our final kind of stuff. What worked about Blade Runner? I think the the look of it, the the just kind of the tactile nature of all of it, even more so than 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 Star Wars. I feel like this this for sci-fi at the time, it just feels so fully real and realized, and you could just you could just be there, and it's everything in it feels uh, real. And and it's such an interesting, unique take on the future on 2019. Um, And then I think the cast is fantastic. I think the the casting all around is is pitch perfect. There's really not a weak link at all in in, Mm -hmm. in anyone here, even the the smaller roles. Um, And. I think you know what it what it has to say as a as a sci-fi you know a lot a lot of these questions have been asked again in movies since then you know we've got Ex Machina we've got I mean we've got iRobot but but you know like like as as you start to think about artificial intelligence as you start to think about the possibility of androids which which people had been you know it had always been around in pop culture you know robots yeah. and androids have have been a part of sci-fi for forever but I, I feel like this is the first one to really say, like, well, what stops what stops them from being human? Why, yeah. in in our minds, especially if we if we take it one step further, then I feel like really anybody had done on screen was this idea of like, let's this is a person, and I'm just going to tell you that they are an android, but you have no way yeah. of telling otherwise. Why is this not a human being, and mm-hmm. and what is what is the difference there? And and to kind of explore that question and and take it deeper is is what i think gives this such a lasting mm-hmm. you know that that's what elevates it to more than than a sci-fi and to more than a detective movie is is yeah. the questions that are raised yeah because like i said it, it, it deals this question of humanity and it's like what what makes you human and what and and kind of how we deal with time in that in that way um but yeah like I, said, I think the cast is phenomenal again I've, I've said before the look is amazing the score um by vangelis is 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 fantastic it makes sense because i think they did the score for chariots of fire which uh michael dealey also produced that as well Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's just 
top to bottom in terms of it is I, I mean i disagree with ebert's initial review and he even kind of said so as well that like the movie is a technical achievement but it is about the characters it's like mm-hmm. it's not focused on just the look of it um say what you will about what the act the the, the actor director relationship was i think the actors brought so much to the film that it elevated it mm-hmm. uh so we kind of mentioned it before but did anything not work in this movie thomas yeah the you know and, and looking looking through a modern lens yeah. kind of the the relation the 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 scene the the love scene between rachel and and uh deckard is it's weird it starts it's a, it's off a, very weird yeah it's a weird it's a weird way to do it um especially because i feel like the moment just before that is very tender and and yes. they connect on a on a real emotional level and then to have kind of your like old school like semi-sexual assault yeah. seduction scene is like Ugh, she no. tries to leave he blocks the door he kind of pushes her away apparently when she's living leaving the apartment in reality ford pushed her too hard so like the pain and shock you see on her face is actually her like kind of feeling like hurt when she hits the wall or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently they had difficulties playing the scene together. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's a very tender moment. And then I was like, Oh, that's odd. Okay. And then like, oh, okay, we're, we're, they're having sex now. Okay, great. Why, how do we get from a really nice moment? 1940s, like masculine, like I'm going to, we're going to have sex to we're loving each other. It was just a very, it's a weird, weird uh, chain of events there. Mm-hmm. and i thought the same thing yeah and then i think my other thing is and, and this is one i know there's a lot of debate over and when it comes to like the cuts i for for this story mm-hmm. the story that's being told here i don't need decker to be a replicant i don't either i think villeneuve comes in and tells that that side what if you were a replicant and a blade runner is done much better in in 2049 then this kind of like oh maybe it, it just it feels like a cheap twist because so much of this is not about deckard you know it, it it is about well it's it's it is about finding your own humanity but not in a way that like am i am i human it's you know what what makes me why do i think i'm different than these people why do i think i deserve to live and they don't and that's his that's his journey in this movie so to have him also have this like, well, maybe I'm a replicant and that, that feels like it cheapens his yeah. lesson a little bit, you, you know? Yeah. It's like, Oh, of course I feel sorry for them. I'm also one of them. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think it's more of an emotional journey for him as a human to come to respect them and, and, and feel empathy for them. So you don't like the unicorn origami at the end that kind of leaves that question mark. My Okay. Here's my question with the unicorn or I, I know this is, I always take that as being that Edward James almost is a replicant. Interesting. Yeah. What most people thought was that like, it's, it's almost like doing that because the unicorn dream that Harrison Ford mm-hmm. has when he's drunk is an implant. Right. Right. And that's what makes them think it's an, it's an implant and that he's, that mm-hmm. he's not, he's not a real person. Yeah. I've never thought of almost being the replicant. At least, kind of, he's always making the origami. He's he's got this kind of the, this way about him that feels like he's yeah, you know, a, a replicant that's working for um, Emmett, Emmett uh, 
That's his... he, he seems yeah, 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 Emmett Walsh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Emmett Walsh, yeah. He seems almost like otherworldly, weirdly. Mm-hmm. Well, he also, because one thing they almost did was he created this like city speaks. So he has a very different language yeah. to how he speaks. So he speaks in slang um, that was very different for the time. Um, but yeah, I, uh, okay. And I, I don't think he's a replicant, but I understand the idea of like, so you like the ending, just you have a different meaning behind it. Yeah. Other people. Okay. Gotcha. Is that it on anything did not work? Yeah, I think so. And and I mean, I, I think, yeah, you know, I haven't seen any of the other cuts, but I think it's, I think it's fine. I just, uh, it, that, that aspect of it. Like, I've I don't heard, think it, I've heard parts narration. I was like, thank God they cut this. Yes. Like, yes. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I think as far as the, like, is Deckard a replicant, I don't, I don't think it overpowers the, mm-hmm. the, the cut, but, but I do think that kind of the discourse that does kind of overpower the legacy of the film a little bit. Like, Oh, yeah. what, what, what do you think? I'm like, I think, I, I think it is better if he is a human yeah. and, and the lesson that he learns is, is empathy for, someone other than him yeah um so let's move on to film facts so the scene where zora or hora whatever however pronounce her name i can't remember joanne cassie the scene where joanne cassie is cra- crashing through the streets sheets of glass mm-hmm. um it was shot in the end of production and as i said before budget and time were running out and so they shot the scene very quickly um and they actually used a stunt woman in a very bad wig to do, to do the scene but for the final cut of the movie, they did one more extra day of shooting in the 2000s, uh, oh. which became known as the green screen shoot. New shot, new footage of Cassie was shot and face replacement technology was used to digitally replace her, pull, the stunt woman's face with Cassie's face. Not only was Cassidy thrilled that she could actually still fit into the costume, the crew, <laughs> the crew was shocked at how well she could still mimic her actions from 25 years before. So when you watch it now it's her it's her her face has been replaced on the actual stunt woman um neither ridley scott nor the second screenwriter david david webb peoples had actually read dick's novel only original screenwriter hampton fancher had Uh, upon rewriting the script peoples peoples asked scott if he should read it and scott said don't bother since the spirit of the book was already in the original draft um Joanna Cassidy, the reason why the snake was so at ease with her around her neck, it was actually her pet. The python. Named Darling. (laughs) Um, Director of photography Jordan Cronenwith uh, actually started suffering from Parkinson's disease at this point. And by the end of production, he actually had to be in a wheelchair uh, because of how grueling the shoot was with shooting all nights. Uh, Apparently, when shooting... Emmett Walsh's scenes really Scott asked him if he could or asked Walsh if he could smoke for his character because Walsh didn't actually smoke in real life Walsh did it and apparently got so sick from the cigarettes he cracked like Ridley should be hung by the balls off uh, by his by his balls off the ceiling because of how he made me smoke at the time Alan Ladd Jr. witnessed this and was so offended by the comment Walsh was removed from from another movie that he was about to work on with Michael Keaton (laughs) so yeah What's the what's the Blade Runner curse, Thomas? Ah, yes, we talked about this uh, during our uh, two thousand one Space, space Odyssey. Yeah. Uh, just the the it's become a a way to refer to specifically this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, many of the brands that are featured as you know when when this movie was made, being thirty years in the future, did not survive until yeah. twenty nineteen, and it and it's become a way to kind of talk about when you go back and watch 
sci-fi movies that feature real brands, how often uh, they're not still around. Yeah. I think, I think Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola made it, but, but a lot of the ones you see during this movie are not, Coca-Cola, are not uh, still things. Coca-Cola made it, but they, they do count it as part of the curse because after this film, they suffered major losses due to the introduction of new Coke in 1985. Uh-huh. So they count this. Um, the Koss Corporation, which is the logo you see a lot um, when Decker is eating in the opening, they also apparently suffered a serious setback years later, but um, it, they, it, they suffered a major loss when it was discovered in 2010 that an employee, the CFO, had embezzled $34 million from the company. Um, but yeah, you have RCA, which by the end, by, by basically the mid-80s was gone. Atari, uh, as it initially was, would be gone by the 90s. Um, now it's kind of a different brand or it's a it's a, the, a different company uses the name uh mm-hmm. bell system was broken up pan am mm-hmm. um uh cuisine art basically so a lot of places all just were closed within like a 10 years a lot of the time uh so the last film fact so really scott initially wanted a more action-packed opening scene that would have set up deckard as a ruthless character now tell me if this sounds familiar it have taken place in a house in the countryside where Deckard is silently sitting and waiting while a pot of soup is boiling on a fire. Suddenly a man comes in wearing a production suit and gas mask. He notices Deckard but anno- ignores him, instead going to take some soup. He then addresses Deckard, but Deckard simply shoots him without saying a word. 2049. 2049. That would It was apparently in a lot of drafts early on. It would be cut. And they later add it as the opening scene for Blade Runner 2049. Oh, oh, awesome. I love that scene. Yeah. So awards. The Beatrice Strait Award actor, actress from the scenes that kills it. Who do you have here, Thomas? I've got uh, I've got Sebastian. Yep. I agree. Uh, and I've got um, Tyrell. Mm-hmm. Maybe Daryl Hannah? Is she? I, 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 I think she's Beatrice Strait. I would put mm-hmm. her in Beatrice Strait. Shout out! I want to shout out him too. James Hong, one yes. scene, fantastic. I, I I forgot he was in this, and I yeah. heard his I heard his voice when they walked in, and I was like, oh yeah, James Hong's in this. Yeah, he was he was really the king of kind of uh, sci-fi in the, in big, the trouble, yeah, big, tr- big trouble in China around this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really really fantastic. Um, so we got we got Daryl Hannah, William Sanderson, Joe Turkle. I'll say I'll say James Hong, but I'll probably cut him out because I think I think other people have bigger roles. Um, it's hard with the Hannah and Sanderson because they're they're together a lot in the movie as mm-hmm. Pris and Sebastian. I would say William Sanderson for me. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's such an interesting character, and and yeah. that. He, he's so distinctive in all the little toys. It's it's such a, a, a weird little part of the of the story. Um, but he, he does it so well. And 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 I mean, you you get the feeling that I don't know. I just love I love the scene when he when Roy comes in and you're like, oh no, there he's in trouble. Like they're yeah. playing with him, and then he's just like, uh, oh, you're what nexus are you? Like I obviously I recognized. Yeah. That you're a part in, of me. A part of me is in you. Mm-hmm. That's what he says, and 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 it's a great. I mean, you know, none of the themes in this movie are really like thrown in your face in any way. But, but he, you know, he lives alone. He prefers the company of of these dolls, and it's a, just another question of you know what 
what makes him human mm-hmm. why, why does he prefer to be you know not around humans um yeah, yeah and i think he, i think he plays it all really well also the like the most heartbreaking arc like the character because he mm-hmm. feels like the one that's the innocent bystander in it all yeah like even even Rucker howard kind of says that he's like i'm sorry sebastian like before he kills mm-hmm. him basically yeah yeah he's 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 really the you have to imagine since they arrived on earth he's really the only person that's shown them kindness probably yeah. ever in their lives why are you staring at this sebastian because you're so different you're so perfect yes what generation are you Nexus 6. Ah, I knew it. Because I do genetic design work for the Terrell Corporation. There's some of me in you. (laughs) Show me something. Like what? Like anything. We're no computers, Sebastian. We're physical. The Annie Potts X Factor Award Sporting Actor Actress is the most memorable. Uh, I think it's Sean Young. That's, That's my vote interesting so where do you put rucker hauer here okay really really uh but yeah we can we can talk about we can talk about rucker hauer here <laughs> i do love sean young i do love sean young in this and that this was a difficult this was actually the most difficult one to decide between yeah because you know it's it's a completely everyone else as far as the um as far as the replicants that we're seeing, it's it's all this like we're on borrowed time. We are, I've, I've you know they've they've lived their entire lives as, as servants, and and they're just trying to figure out what what life, how to extend their lives and how to stay alive. And and Ra- Rachel's got a completely different journey. I mean, she has just yeah. found out that she's not human, and and she's she's that connection between Deckard and and these replicants. Um, Okay. Yeah, I think I think she's I think she's fantastic in this, but you know, at at the at the risk of of I don't know, Riker Howard maybe not getting uh, recognized. I don't know. It's this is a tough one. I'll go with Sean Young because I think she is more of a supporting player than he is. Mm-hmm. Granted, I I think it's not that he's she's supporting, or it's not that he has like way more time than her. I think he has way more impact. So I'm intrigued if we're going to pitch him for MVP. Um, so I will go with Sean Young for, for Annie Potts. All right. Do you like our owl? It's artificial. Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. I'm Rachel. Deckard. It seems you feel our work is not a benefit to the public. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit, it's not my problem. May I ask you a personal question? Sure. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? No. But in your position, that is a risk. So the Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. Who do you go with, Thomas? 
I think there's a reason why a single person's monologue is the most famous thing from this movie. I, I, it's, 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 I mean, it's tough, you know, I, I don't, I, I really like Ridley Scott. I don't know that I would say this is like the, the Ridley Scott film. It's, it's so much like production design, cast, everything. And, and even from hearing your story, like, like script. Yeah. Um, which which in my mind leaves it to ford or howard and, and and once again i think ford is invaluable like we said in being this person who can ground even the most absurd kind of genre stuff but but uh howard it's it's howard who brings this humanity that is it's it's i, I don't know anyone else who could play this role and yeah. and and for me that that this is one of those scenes that i find myself the, the the his his final scene is one of those things that I find myself just pulling up on YouTube yeah. randomly just to be like I haven't it's been a couple months since I watched Rutger Hauer do his Tears and Rain monologue I, I yeah. feel like I need to do it again and I think it's one too because I'll say this I think it's one that when I was younger like in high school I didn't get the monologue like <laughs> time it's like tears and lost in time like tears and rain mm-hmm. um but as you get older it, it, you realize what it's all about it's like I've seen things like it's it's all these different things he's seen as as like in this kind of as a replicant that a human might never like experience but somehow he has but he's still less human than they are for some reason mm-hmm. um yeah i will say this really scott did say this is his most like personal and complete film yeah. to, to to defend him on that one <laughs> um but i think this this is a similar conversation if we ever covered the dark knight we'd probably have to have yeah is that ford is is the comparison is ford is christian bale and howard is heath ledger mm-hmm. is that while bale and ford are the the main characters and the and and the audience surrogate in a way this character comes in and essentially steals every scene they're in overpowers everyone that they're on screen with and you somehow take a character that's supposed to be, well, man, it's supposed to be, but in, in the world is supposed to be this, this villain, this, Mm -hmm. this large villain. And by the end of it, you, he becomes a hero for one. He rescues, he he saves Deckard for one, which there's kind of a conversation about why he actually saves Deckard. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, I think Howard says, is it just a reflex where he's also, he's always been known to save people. So he just saves them automatically. Or is he hoping that, for, that, that Decker tells his story and has a new kind of appreciation about life and time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Howard, every, everything's in that monologue. And to say, to find out that he wrote the big <laughs> kind of last line specifically of it, of, of that tears and rain, that means he added this massive contribution to the film that wasn't present. And like you said, it's probably the, it's the most known dialogue from this movie. So I, yeah, I think, I think I'd have to go with him as well. Cause I think, I think you think of him. Yes. I think yeah. I think of him. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, as, as much as we said, Ford kind of grounds the movie, it's, it's ultimately Roy who convinces us of you know and and we've got rachel we've got this kind of rachel is who convinces deckard i think of of yes replicants humanities but since we're seeing roy and kind of this other we kind of see roy's journey 
it's and it's very short but it is an emotional journey that he goes from like out for blood to to kind of at peace if not you know very tragic peace but at peace at what happens to him and 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 that's what sells us on on the humanity of these these replicants i agree i agree wow were you surprised by that one i was i am i am i didn't expect that happened today Um, i was i was watching it and i was like i I was like i think it's i think i'm gonna go for for (laughs) rucker howard it's the, it's the Andre Iguodala pick of, of, <laughs> of the of the of the play of the finals. Um, Sometimes you gotta acknowledge assists, man. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. All right, final questions. If it was remade today... I mean, we kind of already had that, but let's let's yeah. say I'm I'm not doing I won't do Ryan Gosling. I promise. Right. If it was remade today, the original ver- original version, the the next cut, who who would you cast? Okay, who who do you, who do you want, and what order do you want? Who who do you have? Who do you have? I I did I did Rachel, Roy, and and Deckard, but okay. I could okay. Let's go. Let's go, Rachel. Okay, I'm I'm a little I'm a little influenced by by recent movies that I saw. But uh, I have Mia Goth down for for Rachel. I was I, I thought you might because the eyes <laughs> they have very they're very hypnotic eyes. Both of them mm-hmm. do. Um. Okay. Yeah, I think be- she's she. I mean, you know, we just saw that in Pearl. She's got this kind of fresh faced innocence yeah. that I think. Uh, and I actually I I, 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 I I was on a plane the other day and the person across from me was watching Emma, which I haven't revisited since it came out. But um, yeah, yeah, because she's in that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like that. I like that. It's very, it's very topical. I would say. Yeah. With her. Okay. All right. Roy or Deckard? Deckard. Let's go Deckard first, and then Roy last. All right, Deckard. I have Dev Patel. Uh. Okay. I love Dev Patel. <laughs> I, here's the thing. I, I, I know that sounds weird now, but like, I, I'm happy he had such a like. He's had such a great career these like these past few years because mm-hmm. coming out of Slumdog Millionaire. If like there wasn't a lot for him, like he did the newsroom, yeah. and I'm like, oh, it's mm-hmm. the guy from from Slumdog Millionaire, and then did Last Airbender, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh man, is this, is this the last we see of Dev Patel? Because we hadn't seen him in a while. It felt like, and then he's now become kind of this like indie darling mm-hmm. with Green Knight. I think everyone forgets about, but Lion that he made a few yeah. years ago. Um, he did personal history of David Copperfield, like, um. Yeah, I think he. I think I think he he has a movie coming out soon. That's like kind of an interesting, um, uh, kind of take for him. So yeah, I I I like Dev Patel. Mm-hmm. I I like him for Deckard. Nice. Okay. And then now, for for Roy, Roy, I've got. I was trying to think of someone who's got that kind of the 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 physical 
imposing nature, but also kind of the tenderness. And, and for me, it was uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen is, is who Ooh. immediately came to mind. He would be really good in this. Kind kind of I mean kind of similar to the work he did in in Watchmen, but Watchmen, just I yeah. mean he is a he's a big dude and he is built and 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 he he does have this kind of everything I've seen him in he brings this kind of tenderness that I agree that, that I, I think I think he could very easily convince you of of his humanity for sure. That's it's 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 like you have to be this like intellectual along with um this imposing force um. And he'd be good. He'd be good. I, I I've always liked him. The stuff I've seen him in. He like said, um, uh, Watchmen. But I think he, I think he's I think he's really good in Trial of Chicago Seven as mm-hmm. well. In the part he has, I actually um, to upset people, I actually like the Matrix Resurrections. And I like him in it <laughs> as Morpheus, um, or his Morpheus version. Um, and he was in he, he was in something else. Also, too, like I think he's one of the best parts of Aquaman. Like I think he's <laughs> I think he's an interesting part in Aquaman. Um, so yeah, uh, there's that. Um, but yeah, so I, I like that cast. That's a very interesting cast. Nice. That, that is a very like. If you're making it today, I will say that. It's yeah, very, I really, like, I really tried to stay away from 2049. I was like, how far yeah. can I get from from yeah. Ryan Gosling and and Bautista? Yeah. Give me the give me the rock as in the, and and the Edward James almost character, you know. <laughs> I actually he was like I actually see that I actually want to see him in a, in a character role is the thing. Hmm. I'm int- intrigued to see if he could do it. All right, uh, does this film fit with any other genres, Thomas? Yeah, I mean it, it, it's so so if we're saying that it's neo noir at its at its base, I, I do think it's it's got obviously it's sci fi. Yeah, tech noir, um, tech noir. I would say tech noir. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does. Like I said, it does have that weird kind of western aspect. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's not the first time western and sci-fi has has come together. That's kind of the whole thing with with Star Wars. But mm-hmm. but it it is interesting that it it feels like such a hard-boiled detective movie. But he's a gunslinger, which is not something you see. I mean, you know, how many times did did Bogart pull out a gun in in any of his detective? And it, it was kind of Raymond Chandler movies very very rarely it mm-hmm. you know that's not really a part of the hard-boiled detective that's usually the criminal is that that does that yeah. like like he would mm-hmm. do that in high sierra or something like that but not not as much in his detective stuff yeah so so having that that aspect of like i'm out for blood and that's it yeah i only ask enough questions that i need to confirm my my target and then and then yeah. we're done um does kind of have that 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 gunslinger vibe to it i agree with that all that tech noir, western, neo noir, sci fi, um, yeah, that AI movie if that goes in the sci fi, I guess, mm-hmm. subgenre of that. Um, all right, and then how does this film fit with the neon noir genre? I mean, I think it's, I think it's one of the OGs, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a good one to cover first off because it, it is kind of, you know, much as in the, in the, you know, obviously sci-fi writers themselves were doing this long before, but I do think there's this with star Wars with blade runner in this kind of late seventies, early eighties era, you've got this idea of like, Oh, sci-fi can be this. It's not just space. It's like a mashup of things. And it, and it yeah. is just a, it can be a setting to tell stories in which we are familiar with. Yeah. And, um, and so I think this is really one of the first ones 
to be like this oh look at all these lights look at these robots but this this is just it's it's a detective story that you're familiar with no yeah i agree yeah and we talked about like kind of the three things the kind of the, the three things earlier on about the aesthetic about the neon glow as we're talking about about the the mostly at nights but i think also it's that that ending finale that also it's a violent kind of finale between deckard and and roy mm-hmm. and that's why it's like it's funny that that they changed it because the idea of like it being like a Bruce Lee type fight would almost like take it away from being a neon noir weirdly mm-hmm. enough, but making it this like foot chase and like in this like almost like caverns of the Bradbury building with rain and night, it makes it more of this kind of violent finale in some way mm-hmm. with everyone kind of with, with Daryl Hannah being killed off and kind of going berserk and like with everything. And then finally the, um, uh, the Roy, deckard uh face off mm-hmm. and i think that's what ma- like really kind of solidifies it as a neon noir yeah um and a bruce lee fight i don't know would do that so there's that <laughs> um so yeah anything else you want to say on blade runner i don't think so i think, I think it was a big we've one got it covered it was a big one um and so next or this month we're as i said we're talking about neon noir we're doing a variety of movies so we're in a, in a few weeks we're doing to live and die in la with uh directed by william friedkin we'll have a guest on for that and we're gonna finish off the month with drive the next week we're doing a movie that i i've i've wanted to do for a while thomas and this is <laughs> one that I'm, I'm writing again we'll, we'll we'll talk we'll talk about uh but we're we're doing because i've i've i know where to do it at some point but we're gonna do a movie called streets of fire and you're like what streets of fire glad you asked you'll find out next week next <laughs> week um but it directed by walter hill a really interesting cast with, with Diane Lane, a, a young Willem Dafoe, uh, Rick Moranis. You'll find <laughs> out all about it next week. And I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. I don't think it is. Let me see. Let me see. It is not, but should be able to purchase somewhere online if you can find it. If you have a very short movie, worth checking out. We'll discuss it next week on the show. And that's all we have for this episode. If you have any questions for us, Feel free to contact us at cinationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, kind words. If you're a new listener of the show or if you're a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to subscribe to Cination Podcast to stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Yeah, guys, you know, androids might dream of electric sheep, but podcasters dream of five-star reviews. So... <laughs> Go drop them on your favorite platform. And on top of that, we also dream of uh, you donating to our Patreon and subscribing as a patron. Uh, As we said earlier in the show, go to Ascension Podcast on Patreon. Uh, We have a lot of exclusive content coming your way this month. We already have one from last month that's still up there or up there if you want to listen to it. If you want to listen to more October stuff in November or we're going straight into November, do what you want to do. We don't care. But yeah, $1, $5, $10, every little bit helps. So please do that. And finally, don't forget to line follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.